Tar of the Matter, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and in, your, and in truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. Let's get at it with a prayer. Uh, Father God, we uh, seek you wherever we may be throughout the world, people who tune in, people here in the studio, people uh, wherever who are seeking truth. We pray you'll help us with our words tonight and convey the things that you want us to say. Pray for our volunteers and the people who are here uh, week in and week out, keep things going. We love you, Lord, and we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, next week, Glenn Hill, the author of uh, Christianity's Greatest Dilemma. It's a book that you're going to want to tune into this because Glenn Hill, one, he is a older man, older man in the Lord. He is the salt of the earth. He's the sweetest man I've ever talked to. Talked to him several times recently. And uh, he's going to be here in town one night with his son to share some important things all the way from North Carolina. And he has an amazing story about how he came uh, to write this book. Also, going way out, uh, as they say, save the date, October 1st, 2017, October 1st of this year, Adams Road will be performing here. Oh, we're getting applause for Adams Road. We're going to have a live concert here on Sunday night, October 1st, with Adams Road. And uh, we will hope we hope to fill the place with uh, LDS people, former LDS people, whoever come see Adams Road. So save the date. That's October first. You guys be quiet back there. Okay, listen. Love is blooming or something because voices are rising. I don't know what it is. Uh, I recently read a comment someone posted regarding the discussion I had with the atheist uh, Bryce. He's an atheist who we had on the show. And uh, it was referring to, the comment was referring to when I said, Bryce, you're walking through Los Angeles, it's one in the morning, it's dark, and you come upon three people. Uh, it's, it's a bad area. Three atheists don't believe in any God, the truest of atheists, or three Christians. The truest of Christians, which would you want? And he just said, I would not want to meet a Christian in a dark alley. And it was more of a, a, an argument he was trying to pose. It, was more, it wasn't really about reality, I don't think. But he tried to make it seem like I would never want to meet a Christian in a dark alley. The comment from the person said something to the effect of, forget about three people walking toward you in, in Los Angeles. Let's just say that Sean McCraney was walking toward you and Bryce Blankenail was walking toward you. And which one would you want? And her reasoning said... You know, Sean says he has to fight the urge to punch people in the face. And Sean says that he has to fight the urge to do a number of things. But all Bryce talks about is love and loving people. On his podcast, Bryce is, talks about sharing love and being loving and, and growing in his love. And so she said, it's obvious who I'd rather meet in a dark alley, the guy who just is all about love. And I thought I'd remark about uh, on this because it really brings an important point about Christianity. I am admittedly, and really most Christians, if you talk to them, admittedly say they do not have a good nature. Uh, I don't, if I, ha if I don't die to my flesh daily, every minute of the day, if I don't pick up my cross, be buried with Christ, walk in new life, then I'm going to be unsuccessful, and that man of flesh will be there, in my case. Uh, 
I cannot honestly claim any real virtue in myself. And I don't just say it because that's what we say. It's, it's really true. So all my virtues, if I have them, are present in me because Christ is in me. So, but Bryce claims self-virtue. You understand the difference? I say my virtue comes from a source that came and lived and walked a great, perfect life and died for me selflessly. My spiritual strength comes from him. Bryce's self-virtue, uh, he's even convinced this writer that he's all about love because of the things he says. And in this, we discover the rub for where I admit that there lies in me nothing that's good but Christ when he's there. Bryce portrays himself as possessing his own virtues without any heavenly intervention. It's man saying, I am good, you can trust me in a dire situation as if you were going to be confronted in a dark alley. If I was with you, I would just sacrificially give myself. Now, let's go to that dark alley. I claim that Christ drives me to selflessness and self-sacrifice, and Bryce is on autopilot. He's on, I will be who I am. And let's say we are each helping somebody through Los Angeles in the L.A. gang madness, and um, we run into some Crips or some Blood or some 18-string gang members, and they confront us, and uh, we have a choice. We can give up ourselves, or we can give up the person who's with us and live. One of us is going to live. When Jesus was, comes out of the Garden of Gethsemane, they come, the temple guards come and take him, and he says, am I who you've been seeking? They say, yeah, and he says, let these others go. His was selfless, take me, and then he went on and he died for the sins of the world. He was concerned about the person that was with them, and that is the person that I claim to try to uh, follow, the role model of mine. So since I am honest about my weakness as a man in the flesh, I'm honest, I'm a parent, I'm, I have nothing in me, you ought to believe that I'm also honest about my devotion to trying to following him and the example that he set. So, but all we have backing up Bryce is his claims of being magnanimous and his claims of loving and his claims of being selfless, so selfless he wants to leave the world a legacy even though he's going to die and he's never going to know one thing about it because there's no afterlife. So, Think about this. I trust that there's an afterlife. I trust that I am going to stand before a maker and be accountable for how I followed his son. Okay, you got that? Bryce, if you're going to compare who's, who's, who you're going to go with, Bryce has no accountability after this life to God. He can do anything. He could take that person he's helping and throw them to the bloods or the Crips, and he would be fine because there's nothing in his opinion that lasts after. So who would you trust? Someone who believes that there's going to be an accountability before God. I don't mind that accountability. Or someone who says there's none. So the logic is so twisted, it's become so humanist, and so thinking that to follow Jesus, you're a bad person, and to not follow Jesus, you're a good person, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, it's intellectually dishonest. If you sat down with someone who made those claims and you broke it down, and the reason I came to this was because of what uh, Adnan, I think it was Adnan, he wrote us and he taught me this, and uh, the insights led to this perspective, that we have to challenge that. 
When someone says as an atheist, I'm superior to a Christian who's a zealot, just break it down and start to use those arguments on them. And I think you'll quickly see there, there's no merit but the strength that's in the atheist's own life. So uh, I hope that is of some uh, help. Um, we have a brand new spot tonight, and it's a beautiful spot done by Cassidy. And it's going to explain something brand new to the ministry that we are introducing. And so take a look at this. Aletheia Ministries has stridently tried to make financial support a non-event. It's been a difficult balancing act, refusing to harp on our monetary state while keeping the mission alive. Looking to the apostolic church, Paul thought it perfectly just to live off the carnal things of the church in exchange for providing them spiritual things. So he applied his skills as a tent maker so as to never be wrongly charged by those he was there to feed. From a very young age, Sean has been engaged in one form of artistic expression or another. Acrylic keychains, sketches, ceramics, cartoons. Just as Paul was a tent maker, Sean has recently decided to turn his form of artistry, deconstructing acrylic panels, as a means to subsidize the work of the ministry. So here's the deal. We are offering anyone who is interested an original, one-of-a-kind, signed, numbered, and authenticated piece of art for a minimum, mostly tax-deductible donation. This, of course, is not for everyone. In fact, it's not for most people, as the minimum donation is high. But we are certain that these original works will make a tremendous addition to anyone's collection, while your donation will greatly help the continuation of this ministry. If you have the discretionary income and the inclination, please contact us. As always, we are grateful. Thanks, Cass. Great work. Um, so how that would work, just to let you know, first of all, it's costly because I can't even afford uh, to buy the art that I do. And it, so there's a price to it, but 90, 85% to 90% of it would be right. You would make a donation, uh, donation to the ministry, and then you would say, I would like you to do a portrait of this person, and you give me an image of that person. We do it in acrylic. I etch it out. We'll draw it on, etch it out. And then we'll ship it to you anywhere uh, in the world. And, uh, and that's how it would work. So the ministry would receive the, uh, the funds. We would use those funds to help keep everything going. And then you would receive that. And, and again, we would sign it and date it and authenticate the piece so that you would have a one-of-a-kind and original piece of art. And, and like uh, it said in that piece that Cass did, 
Paul made tents, you know, Th these are my tents and it's just a way to try to uh, alleviate um, uh, the financial strain on people. So, and if you can't participate in this, believe me, I wish I could do a piece for every single person I know and give it to them, but it's just the way that we're trying to make some ends meet. And uh, if you're interested, the email uh, us, Sean at Aletheia Media, and we'll go from there. With that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Do you have a tendency, like I do, to see your, your actions in life as magnanimous and benevolent when you do things of apparent virtue? I feel good when I you know, pay my taxes or I help a neighbor move a piano or let someone in a lane of traffic. I feel very good about myself and uh, I tend to automatically think, gosh, you know, God is so happy with, with me and so pleased. Uh, this is especially true when I do something a little beyond what's expected and, you know, forgive someone quickly, turn the other cheek, show an, an excess, a little bit excess of something here or there. A few weeks back, I was reading in Luke, and there's a fascinating passage. Jesus says to his disciples, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down and eat? But will he rather not say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Doth he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I don't think so, Jesus says. Then he adds this, So likewise you, he says this to his apostles, when you have done all those things which you are commanded as his apostles, say this in your heart, say this to yourself, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, reading this, it sounds like that when we die and go to God and rehearse to Him all the good that we've done, if we ever did that, the reality would be that we've really only done our duty. And that's what Jesus kind of tells His apostles, what was expected of us. What is duty in the eyes of God and what is genuine sacrifice that will be recognized as real sacrifice? I think of parents Parents, sometimes, you know, we tend to think, I've sacrificed so much for my children. We brought the darn children into the world. I mean, you haven't really sacrificed. You've just done your duty of feeding them and clothing them and, and sending them to college and, and, and all the stuff you do for your kids. That's a duty. That's really not a sacrifice. So it's sort of tough, tough to say. Most Christians seem to think that what we do as Christians is sacrificial. And uh, when really, I think all we're doing is what's expected of being a Christian. In Jesus' words, he seems to be telling his apostles that even after they've done everything that was commanded of him, of them, that they, would call, they should call themselves unprofitable servants because all they've done was what was their duty. It's quite fascinating. It's a good thing, I think, for us to consider in our lives because in the end, maybe some of us think God's going to be wowed by our lives of, of service when, you know, you return a bag full of money you see on the street uh, because a bank dropped it. You return it to the bank. Wow, you've done a good thing. That was just your duty, you know. And uh, 
you help somebody who's in need. I wonder about that, if that's just not the Christian duty and has nothing to do with rewards or whatever. But Jesus says something else that's interesting. We'll wrap it up with this. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the publicans do that. So if you're, if you're doing your Christian duty to the people who love you, that sounds like it's just duty. But he says, I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, and do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So maybe that is our definition of Christian sacrifice, to love those who hate us and treat kindly people who treat us badly. And it's hard. It's so difficult. I understand. But I just thought I would bring that up in our From the Word. With that, let's get into our application, finally, of everything Chomsky has been talking about. Looking back a few few weeks, we're now entering into a new segment. Many of you are happy about that. We left off finalizing Chomsky's thoughts on how the few in big government, multimedia corporations, and big media seek to manipulate the many as a means to keep them out of their hair so that they can achieve their selfish desires. And we left off talking about how the few have worked very hard to supply us, the many, with untenable dreams, unreachable dreams through advertising and moving goals, shifting goals. Try to be this and then it moves. Try to be that because fads are constantly changing. And it keeps us so occupied with keeping up and trying to measure up, we don't have time to confront the manipulations that are going on. We talked about how Chomsky said that the few manufacture our consent. They get us to agree to this exchange. Uh, They provide the images and advertising. They provide the products through manufacturing. And we say, I have to live up to that. I have to buy that. I have to be that in order to uh, uh, be acceptable. And we embrace attitudes and behaviors uh, in our lives. And we really bite hard on this bait, if you really think about it. If it's not one thing, it's another. If it's not one movie character, it's another movie character. So... This all winds up making us conspicuous consumers, which amounts to us becoming spectators of life rather than participants of life. When all you're doing is trying to keep up and and do this, you all become a spectator rather than a participant. So successful is this approach that society as a whole has fallen under this spell to the point that most people under 40 today don't even really know what it means to think for themselves. We really don't. We let magazines and television and and things like that tell us, dictate to us, how to think in this culture of consumerism. So truly in our day, we, the masses, are the prey. And the established culture by the few is the predator. And that's that's all he's been saying. So... Let's take this and now apply it to the church. We finally arrived at the point where all those principles, we can now start to hack at the root. See, the very same principles Chomsky describes apply to religion today. And I'm going to go to the board in a minute, and I'm going to go through and use this board to explain how that works. And now, the, now your eyes hopefully will begin to see 
all this back study and this homework we've done, how it will apply to what's happening uh, over the course of the institutional religions that have been put upon us. We have become conspicuous Christian consumers. Now, not, that's just not material things. That is, we have become conspicuous consumers of Christian religion. We become consumers of what the religions feed us and tell us to do, to belong, to be accepted. And when we do that, the few continue to manipulate the many. Uh, we're going to spend the rest of the year in between guests like next week, Glenn Hill and others, explaining in detail how the imputation of each of these factors in the faith have created a body of Christian lemmings, truly. And that when you go against that grain, when you swim against that, that river, you become an outcast. You can either be a lemming and follow what the few say we must do, or you can become an outcast if you swim against it. And that's the kind of the beauty of their tactic, is there's a promise of freedom and emancipation from the things of this world and from your sin, but it's, it's an exchange of, that, of, of bondage in the world to bondage to religion. And please know emphatically that my arguments are not against flesh and blood. These arguments are not against a specific pastor even who preaches this stuff. They don't know. They think they're doing what they're supposed to do. Hopefully, as we go through this graph and we lay it out, we will show how they have been misled too. So we never war against flesh and blood. We love flesh and blood. Uh, we war against principalities. That's what we're talking about. These are principles we're talking about that we're warring against. So um, try to keep these qualifiers in mind. Uh, also, it's not an indictment against all gatherings at churches. It's just an indictment against religion becoming a mediator between the individual and God. So I want to begin by asking you something. Okay, you ready? What did the Apostle Peter mean when he wrote to the believers in his epistle late in the apostolic age, 1 Peter 4, 7? This, what did he mean? But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. What did he mean? That's written by the hand of a very chief apostle. The end of all things is takos, at hand. We have to admit the following in the face of these words. If we're to believe Peter knew what he was talking about. First, we have to believe that Peter was right. You can say, no, he wasn't right. And if you say that, I don't know how you trust the Bible or any epistle, any apostle wrote. So the suggestion that Peter was wrong destroys trust in the apostolic writings. So Peter was absolutely correct. The end of all things was at hand and he wrote it to them in that day. Next, we have to admit that Peter wrote this to a group of people then and there that the end of all things was, was, was at hand for them. Not is at hand for us, was at hand for them. Then we have to decide what Peter meant when he said the end of all things, right? 
And this, we have to admit that when he wrote all things, that he was speaking to a certain group that were doing certain things. Now, I want to help you with an example here. Let's pretend Peter was not an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was the senior representative of fruit pickers in the apostolic age. And as the senior representative of fruit pickers, he wrote an epistle and he told them, fellow fruit pickers, the end of all things is at hand. We have to put that in context. The end of all things. Well, fruit picking in Peter's day and age meant ladders and gunny sacks and tools and hand pickers and all that. And, and Peter, knowing that the end of that was at hand, he tells them, the end of this is, is, is over. Okay? If he said that, then we would know that everything that had to do with fruit picking in that day and age was going to come to an end. Now, does that mean that people will no longer eat fruit? No. Does it mean trees will stop producing fruit? No. Does it mean fruit doesn't need to be removed from trees? No. It simply means that the means by which they removed the fruit was going to be done away with. By what? By mechanical means. Peter was foreseeing that machines are going to come in, they're going to shake the trees, they're going to remove the stuff with mechanical arms, and the end of all things relative to our fruit-picking days is over. So, we know Peter was not a fruit picker, but we know he was an apostle. And when he says the end of all things is at hand 2,000 years ago, what he was saying was the end of everything that we have established here in terms of religion. The end of material religion, the end of the law, the end of the temple, the end of genealogies. I would say the end of elders and deacons and and, 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 and all the things that the New Testament apostles were writing to keep the church together after Jesus died. The end of all things, he said, relative to Peter and his group. So that would include those things. The end to material religion was over. Is believing over? Never. That's, that, that would be like saying fruit is gone too, to the fruit picker. Believing continues. Is Loving God over and walking in faith and love over? No, those are invisible things that will always be. But the all things Peter was talking about were part of that New Testament economy. If we don't get that set in our minds, we will forever be subject to the whims and wiles of the few who govern institutional religion. What are the things that ended the Bible tells us? Scripture puts it this way. Anything that can be shaken will be shaken. And the only thing that will remain are things that can't be shaken. That is quoting Hebrews. Scripture puts it this way. The laws will be written on the human hearts in those days. It's not going to be written out there for rules on windows and doors and walls. The laws of God will be written on human hearts. That the faith would become spirit-led, fully spirit-led, as everything else was going to end. Even Jerusalem was going to go up in flames and come crumbling to the ground. All things related to Peter's day and age going backward were going to end. Men did not want it to end. They did not and they wouldn't let it end. They wanted to reclaim the all that Peter said was over. 
and they reinstituted it, though God himself had wiped it out, as proven by the New Testament. And so Jesus is coming, and to wrap up the material church, Peter says the end is coming, Jerusalem's going to go, religion's going to go, all of this is going to go. What should remain? All that is in operation by the Spirit because of what Jesus and the apostles and prophets had done. All right, on our board, I've created a table, and we're going to work through some things really quickly. And this will be of great assistance to you, I believe, as you consider what I just proposed. All right, so let's go to the board, Delaney and... Larry? All right. His victory. This is what the Bible talks about. His victory described as and the result. I'm just going to cover these, these this week, and then we'll wrap it up. First of all, his victory, the good news. Not bad news, the good news. Described as come and buy without money. <coughs> Described as coming out to all the world. The good news. The result, gratitude. Freedom. Liberty. Pretty nice, huh? That victory of his gives us the good news. And look at that. Come and buy without money. It's free to everybody, all the world. He came to save everybody. And the result, look at that result. It's gratitude and freedom and liberty. Anything that's going to give you that, we want it, right? So let's go to the next one. He, Jesus, has all authority. It's him. And like... He is our head, Scripture says. He is in us. He is our head, meaning He does the thinking for us. Right? And what is the result of that? We have faith, and we have love, and we rejoice in the Spirit. Because Jesus, who is infallible, He leads us. Can Jesus shake can he be shaken? No. Can a man be shaken? Yes. So my authority is useless because it can be shaken. His authority cannot be. So we don't trust in authority. We don't trust in men. It's laid out by his victory. He's given it to us. Stay with me. The third one. True humility. We know from Scripture that true followers who understand his victory, have true humility. Uh, they become as little children. As little children. Now, you're going to see here, these two boxes we're going to get to, it, it's going to be what religion has done. And we're going to see the opposite of all of this stuff played out through institutional religion. And you're going to see how the few through these boxes have manipulated and twisted what originally was made and meant to liberate all people. So true humility, Jesus said, become as little children. He also said the weak things, check this out, the weak things of the world he will use. You're going to see what religion says. You're going to see what they've done and what they say. 
Okay, let's go to number four. Unburdening. Unburdening. That means your load is lessened, not increased. Do you get that? So this is a promise because of his victory. Come unto me and all you that labor and uh, I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's an unburdening, all right? And so uh, the result is, you know, he, here it's rest and come unto him and the result is joy. The result of the weak things in the children is just sheer humility. These are the products, these are the results of the good news. Number five, we live by the Spirit. Now, this is a command all through the New Testament, to live by the Spirit, and yet when we come to religion, we're going to see almost everything is by material. Almost everything is by flesh. This has been given to us as a result of his victory, but religion changes that around. So when you live by the Spirit, the law is written on our hearts. And the result of the law being written on our hearts is the freedom to love. Number six, all things are lawful. Not all things are awful. All things are lawful. We don't have to police anybody anymore. We don't have to have other people telling us what you can and can't do. We don't have to be commanded to repent for a certain period of time, for a number of days, to pay a certain amount, to do this, to come to church for six months. All things are lawful. Why? Because we live by the Spirit. It's written on our own individual hearts. And so all things are lawful. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, Paul adds not all things are expedient. Fine. But the Spirit will tell us what's expedient and what's not in our lives. But you'll see what religion does, to that, does with that. But all things are lawful. And again, we walk by the Spirit. And you are responsible. Now, people don't like this. This isn't necessarily, this is a result of all things being lawful. But this responsibility is often hated by people, even good people, because they don't want to have to make decisions for their own, themselves. And so what they do is they fall back on religion. And we'll talk about that when we get there. And then under all things are lawful, we jump down here and we have financial freedom. What did Paul say, financial freedom? He said, give cheerfully, without compulsion. If you're going to give, give cheerfully. If you're not going to give, all things are lawful. Okay? All you got to do is look at what he's given us through his victory, and we have it right here for us, but instead the religions jump in and say, no, 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 wait a minute. And that's, that's how we're going to be able to prove they have manipulated us and kept us in bondage. So you're free financially, and you give cheerfully, the Spirit leads, etc. The end of materialism. Uh, we'll see what churches do with that, but the end of materialism. Jesus, remember what he said, the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Do you remember when he said that? 
That was part of his victory. He never told them, go out and build churches. He never commanded that. He never commanded any of the material applications that religions take. It was the end of a material world because the material things can be shaken. And uh, the result of that is his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. Religions want to make his kingdom of this world. His kingdom is spiritual. You can see a spiritual leaning to all these things that are the result of his victory. But the religions want to bring it back, say all things have not ended. We need to materialize a kingdom in order to keep it going. Number nine, afterlife punishment. His victory changed this forever. Forever. God is love. We'll talk all about afterlife punishment. Another a key four-letter word for that is hell. And we'll talk about what uh, institutional religions have done with that concept in order to keep the many captured and manipulated by the few. And then number 10, we have second coming. Now remember, I started off and said... What did Peter mean when he said the end of all things is at hand? He meant the end of all things. What would bring about the end of that, of all things? It would be his second coming. And his second coming was part of his victory. It had to wrap up. Otherwise, we're waiting for that victory to occur. So what uh, we have here is his second coming. And all would happen within a generation. And the Bible was all about that day. And reasonable context in this, the result of all this provides freedom. Because if you realize that all of it has occurred, you have freedom. If you think it's still happening, you have terror. If you still think that afterlife punishment's coming your way, you have terror as a, as a believer. And if you think that materialism is uh, still going on, you have terror because you got to support, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, Jesus' victory made the faith completely subjective, which I've talked about many times. So that is, and the subjective religion is, uh, no man judges another. We're free to walk in Christ. We have his law written upon us. We are responsible before God. We don't have to answer to sin proclivities, failures, tithes, buildings, anything, getting degrees so we can be powerful, none of that stuff applies at all to the faith. It is completely, entirely in his victory, and the results are all, almost always, we can just write across here, freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. Unburdening, remember? Unburdening is synonymous with freedom. How much time do we have left? Okay. Okay, so I'm going to go over to this side because I have time and I'm just going to wrap that up because we're going to break it down as we go on. Institution, churches, institutions, religion. What does it say? What does it do with these 11 boxes? Think about this, right? What does it do? What are the results? Okay, so the gospel. Religion says it's you must join us. 
It is the good news. No, you, it's for all the world. You buy it without money. Religion says, join us. You can have the good news in your life if you join us. Okay? So, and the result of that is always somehow, in the end, bad news. Always. It turns out somehow, now I don't mean terrible news and I don't mean you're going to die, or, but it always will wind up to some sort of thing that was never intention through his victory. Never intention through what Christ did. He had a victory for us that wipes everything away. But religion says, no, when it comes to the good news, we're going to add a little bad news in there with it. All right. The next one is he has all authority. And what do they say? We have authority. And guess what? The whole game reverts back into the hands of men. And Jesus is our head. We are responsible to him. The religions say, no, 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 no. He would never leave it that way. We have to put in place. I mean, remember they had elders and deacons and they did that in place. Remember what Peter said? All things will be gone. So they just try to regurgitate that. We have authority. And what happens with that? You begin to please men more than God. You begin to trust men more than God. Okay? The third one, true humility. It's become as little children and the weak things of the world, God uses the weak things, not the powerful, not the mighty, but the weak things to confound the wise, right? What happens when religion gets involved? They say, you know, I have an answer for that. Intelligence. My high education. They say, uh, uh, power plays. And they do all sorts of things by their flesh. When Jesus said, be as little children and be weak. Be weak in the things of, uh, don't you have to worry about measuring up and having all this. This was what his victory is. Look at what religion starts to do. And what happens as a result of men becoming powerful? We get... Oops, arrogance. No more sheer humility when the weak things of the world and the children, our people, are, believers are becoming like little children. You, we then begin to get power plays and arrogance begins to reign, religious arrogance. Let's look at the uh, history of the church. We go over to unburdening. And guess what? I'll just write one word here. Assignments. Calls duty, right? He came to give us rest. The result is joy. Religion gives us assignments. It reburdens us with what it wants us to do, right? And so the result of that is burden. Live by the Spirit. What, is, what, is, what do uh, religions say? We live by the law. What law are they talking about? Well, some will say not by the law of Moses, but they'll take the Bible and they'll use that as a law. So one way or another, they are using laws and they say we live by the law. And the result of that, again, is 
burdens and manipulation. Number six, all things are lawful. The result is you are responsible before God. It's described as having the spirit in your life. All of this stuff is lawful. You don't have to worry about it because Jesus took care of sin. He died and he took care of sin. Now all things are lawful to them that believe, right? But the church comes in and says, oh, no, no. And they, there's a great word for it. And they come in so many shapes and sizes, legalisms. And they come in a thousand different ways. Many times they will preach liberty. You have liberty, liberty, liberty in Christ. But the whole time they're throwing out legalisms upon you, more laws by which to live. And the result, of course, is uh, the problem is the law equals sin in people's lives. And what happens is the church makes you sinners. And I know that's radical to say, but when you have a church that says you must be doing this, in order to belong, in order to have the gospel, you've joined us. This ultimately will lead us, all people in that church, to become sinful. Either by their pride, by their meanness, by their legalisms, by thinking they can please God through those outward expressions. Then we have financial freedom. Well, you know what they did with that one, don't you? And it's one that just bugs me. Because it'd be really convenient to burden the hell out of everybody with tithing. Because it benefits me. And I would love to do it sometimes. When, I, when I'm struggling, I think, you know, tithing would really be convenient to just start preaching. Because what it does is it puts everybody on this side of the fence and takes them out from that side. But you can't do it. This is what organized religion is. And they have no basis at all on that one. And again, the result, burden. And it's amazing in today's church. People think, you've gone off your rocker. This isn't true. It is true. They will justify tithes like no other, and there's no justification for it. Especially in the spirit of the, of, the, uh, uh, of the gospel and how there's liberty and freedom. After that, we come to the end of materialism, and here we go right back to a material church. And you know what that means when the church is materially based? It means there needs to be strategy, there needs to be market share, there needs to be brick-and-mortar institutions, there needs to be boards, there needs to be financial accountability groups. There's all sorts of things because the church is material and they have to do all these things to stay afloat. And again, the result is a worldly kingdom that reassures itself that it's not of this world, a worldly kingdom that reassures its congregates it's not of this world, while it plays to emotionalisms, and it plays to materialisms, and it plays to name it and claim itisms, and wealth and healthisms, all to stay afloat. They say we're not of this world, but the whole time they're pitching a pitch that is all about this world, which they have to do in order to maintain the kingdom they've created. It's exactly what they do, and it fits right in with what we've dis uh, been discussing about Chomsky. Afterlife, punishment, hell. Well, you know this one. Hell and fire and punishment and etc., etc., etc. And it's tied to tithes, and it's tied to legalisms, and it's tied by living by the law. And the whole gospel is lost over on this side of the fence. It's amazing. We don't see it because we're part of it and we're too busy being part of it to realize what's happening to us. And then we come down to, oh, I already did that? In the material? Oh, no, no, no. 
Uh, second coming. Uh, that one is, uh, you know what it is? It's we're on constant alert. 2,000 years of people ignoring the fact that Peter said the end of all things is at hand. 2,000 years of this manipulation going on. People say, well, why has God let that happen? Because God is a God of freedom. He is going to let those who are seekers of truth and people who want to follow him because of these victories, he's going to let them find and show that they love him and care enough about things to, to question and challenge. But he's going to let the rest just buy into it, hook, line, and sinker, and get reeled into the boat, chopped up for sushi, and tempura fried. I don't know what I'm saying. All right. On constant alert, if you are on constant alert for something that has already happened, you are, can never rest. The, the, the result is restlessness, fear. It's all these things that the Bible proves. The Bible, I'm not making it up. The Bible proves we're done. We don't need it. We have rest. All things. We're about to come to an end. And finally, we have the bottom one, the subjective relationship, which is really an amalgamation of everything that Jesus gave us. That's what we have in this life. We have a subjective relationship. You never have to walk into a church. No one ever has to come to campus. You never have to do anything. You have faith, you trust, you walk, you seek, whatever you're going to do, led by the Spirit, God is in charge. You don't have to do anything with religion. Nothing. And yet we come over here and we make it a monster because we feed you things to buy into. We feed you consumerisms. Buy this, buy that, buy into it. You won't have to think for yourself anymore. We'll give you the answers. We'll put you in the chains. And what they claim instead of subjective faith is objective faith. And you know as well as I do, if you've been with us for any amount of time, there's not a damn objective faith on this earth that has ever agreed with somebody else. Every appeal at objective faith is a fail. Almost every single thing that Christians say is objectively based is argued over. Everything by people who love God, by people who seek Jesus, the scholars of those people will argue over what we constantly maintain must be objective truths. It's not true. And so, and, and the result of the objective uh, uh, faith is dogma. And this dogma plays right into all this stuff. And in the end, what you have on this side is freedom. What you have on this side is burden. And if we trust Jesus in his words that he came to set the captives free and he came to open the prison doors to them that were bound and that he did it all, he's the author and finisher of our faith, that what Peter said, that the end of all things is at hand, that anything that is can be shaken will be shaken and the only thing that will be left are things that can't be shaken. We have to have a revival that deconstructs the material religions in our world. If we do it, we have a chance of survival. Without the deconstruction, we won't survive. Uh, there's too many things that are telling our kids 
the stuff on the, on the right hand of that board are just a joke, and the kids are starting to see it. I'm, I, it's, I'm telling you. So that's our show. We have an off-air question. Corey wants to know if it's true there is a second anointing for the higher-ups in the LDS temple. Yes, uh, it's true, according to things I've read. And that is the second anointing is where you go in and you receive an ordinance. They used to say it's when you meet Jesus Christ face to face, but that kind of got away, gotten away with way back. And I think in times and seasons, they used to print the names of people who received the second anointing. And what they tell them is, listen, uh, if you have received the second anointing, you'll never fall from grace. And it, my, my claim is that's what Christianity is. You, everyone has the second, the first and second and third and fourth anointing. You come by to Jesus by faith. You don't have to worry again. So the LDS really come to what true Christianity is through their application of that second anointing uh, when Christianity preaches it from the get-go to anybody who receives Christ by faith. Mark on line one from Columbia, South Carolina. Mark, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey, Sean, how you doing? Good, how you doing? Hey, I appreciate your show, dude. Um, I have uh, a line of questioning, not really questioning, but thinking that I wanted to get your uh, input on how the LDS missionaries would react to it, or even neighbors that I talk to sometimes. Um, in my opinion, it just proves Mormonism completely. Um, and so it, it deals with the fact that matter, they believe matter is eternal, right? Uh, they do believe that matter is eternal, cannot be created yeah. or destroyed by God. So, if matter is eternal, time has to be eternal. Yes, I would, I would guess so. You know, you have an object that's material, basically. It has to be able to move from one point in space to another point in space, and that would mean time passing. Yeah. So, if time is eternal into the past, you can't cross an infinite number of past events that must take place before you can arrive at the, the moment in time that we're living in right now. Ah. So it would take, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Can't be of past events that have to take place in order to arrive at right now. Right. Because they're, they're an so, eternal list of past events. Exactly. Yeah. If it's if if the amount of past events is eternal, you'd never would get to this <laughs> to moment. Present. So time had to have a beginning. That's really a great insight. <laughs> I um, love that. And it's it, it's a lot like the cosmological argument, which also you know is against atheists. Right. Um, and so it seems to work the same way against the LDS idea of a, a past eternal. Let me know how. Let me know how it works when you use it on those LDS missionaries. I think you're going to dumbfound most of them. Will they have any response to it that you would know of? How you would have maybe? If they do, it's gonna it's gonna be embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I asked Danny about it. He 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 said he thought I'd probably lose a lot of Mormons on that. I think you will. I think you will. But uh, nevertheless, it's a great thought, and for the ones who are thinking, you might plant a great seed. Yeah, that's what I want to put a stone in this shoe. Good. I won't hold you, man. I appreciate you. God um, bless you, brother. Keep going. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh -huh.
Before we wrap it up, we have an off-air question. Bo, spelled the same way as my brother spells his name, wants to know what worshiping God in spirit and in truth means. That is a really good question. Because if you just worship God in spirit, and there's a reason that the scripture says in spirit and in truth, that means that you are just being led by what you believe is the spirit, right? And so the LDS say, I just go by the spirit. I go by the spirit. It doesn't matter what you can say about the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, Brother Greg Price. I go by the spirit. Worshiping God in just the spirit and not in the truth is a fail. Because how do you know what the truth, how do you know what the spirit is telling you is true unless you know the truth? Now, Worshiping God in just the truth and not the spirit is akin to the Pharisees. They often would follow the law perfectly. They would do all that was right. They had the truth, but they missed the spirit of it, which is love. So what you have is, are those two witnesses and the, you worship God through the spirit and you worship God in, in seeking him through the truth. And that is what God is wanting people to do. He doesn't just want emotionalism. He doesn't just want geniuses. He wants people who seek him, the truth of him through the word, by the spirit. And that is the one-two combination that makes people come to know him probably the best way that we can know him in this life. So remember that. It's not God didn't say, Jesus didn't say God seeks those who will worship him in spirit. He said, and he didn't say that God seeks those who will just worship him in truth. He said, God seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Those are the one-two combinations. Bo, thanks for the great question. Great show. Thanks for all the volunteers. Next week, remember, we're going to have a great guest, Glenn Hill, and he's going to tell you about his uh, understand, coming to understand something unique about the gospel that he's really lost a lot in his life over, and it's going to be a great show. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know, and I can feel